Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dan Moran. I'm thrilled to be here today with Scott Iman. Mr. Iman is the author of many film-related biographies, among them Lives of Cary Grant, John Wayne, John Ford, and Mary Pickford. He's here today to talk about his newest book, Charlie Chaplin versus America, published in October of 2023 by Simon & Schuster. You know, I've read several of his other books. I recently finished the Chaplin one, and I have to say it's great. I am not just saying that to ingratiate myself to our guest. It's a terrific biography. I am thrilled to talk about it today. Welcome, Scott. No, good to be here, Dan. Thanks for having me. So let's, let's dive right in. In the middle of your book, it's 1948, and Charlie Chaplin says, quote, they want me dead, but they won't succeed. They want me dead, but they won't succeed. So take us through that statement. Well, the, he was speaking at the at the tail end. Actually, he w- it was nowhere near the tail end. He was speaking after basically eight years of uh, of uh, what can only be uh, uh, called persecution uh, for his political beliefs, his sexual habits, uh, the way he combed his hair, his age, uh, his taste in women, you name it. Uh, he was getting uh, assaulted. Uh, it basically began, well, the FBI began surveilling him in 1923 when the FBI wasn't the FBI. I mean, it was, so he was regarded as a suspicious character long before uh, everything uh, clicked into high gear uh, around World War II. Uh, during World War II, uh, he uh, advocated uh, the opening of a second front to aid Russia, who were our allies at the time in the fight against Hitler. Uh, which outraged everybody on the right and many conservatives who uh, weren't even that far on the right, uh, because even though Russia was our allies, it was regarded as a marriage of convenience. Uh, And for many uh, on the right, Russia was simply our enemy of the future and was always going to be our enemy of the future. And this was merely a temporary uh, truce uh, until Hitler was out of the way, and then everything could go back to its natural state. Chaplains core belief among many was that nationalism was a disease, that uh, uh, unthinking uh, advocacy for whatever country you happen to come from uh, was a recipe for chaos. That's what led to Hitler. That's what led to concentration camps, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, He himself had deeply ambivalent feelings about England, uh, where he was born and raised uh, because of his uh, uh, catastrophic childhood. Uh, and uh, the uh, tender mercies of the English uh, welfare system were visited upon his family. Uh, so he had some personal uh, 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 skin in this game, in his, in his uh, social and political beliefs. Uh, all this was further complicated uh, shortly after the, uh, the Russian stuff by a, uh, a paternity suit that was brought against him uh, over a relationship he had with a younger woman. She was 23 or so when they got together. He was uh, 52, I believe, 52 or 53. Uh, They were together for perhaps a year. Uh, She had previously been the mistress of J. Paul Getty, among others. 
uh, the uh, relationship broke up. He originally thought that she might have the makings of an actress, and he signed her up uh, as a contract basis for his studio. Uh, signed her up with Max Reinhardt's drama school to give her some dramatic training, et cetera, et cetera. But she was far too erratic uh, uh, to, to, to follow through with that. Uh, they broke up. She came back some months later, said she was pregnant by him. Uh, she specified the date of conception. At that point, he realized he couldn't be the father uh, because it was, I believe, December 23rd, and they hadn't slept together on December 23rd. So he volunteered to take a blood test. Uh, she had had and this the is Joan. Sorry, this is Joan Berry. We're talking about Joan right. Joan Berry. She had had the child uh, after some preliminary sparring, legal sparring. She had the child, a little girl. Uh, he took the blood test. Uh, the blood test proved he was not the father of the child. And when the case went to court, he lost the case. He was found guilty of fathering the child, and he had to pay child support for eighteen years of the child's life. Uh, this did not sit well with him. After World War II. Uh, the social climate in America gradually began to shift from a we're all in this together uh, attitude that had uh, described what was going on during World War II to we're not all in this together, we all have to turn on each other. And uh, the, uh, uh, the House on American Activities Committee began investigating Hollywood, the Hollywood 10, the blacklist era began, and, and Chaplin was also uh, implicated in that, even though as I said, the FBI had been keeping tabs on him for, uh, at this point, uh, uh, almost 25 years. And they knew very well that, A, he was not a communist. B, had never donated a dime to the communist cause. Uh, in modern terms, you probably would call him a libertarian. Uh, except, as I said, even libertarians generally have a, uh, a, a healthy advocacy for the country they're born in. Chaplin didn't. Uh, but all this combined to basically form a tsunami. Of, of character assassination that went on for years. The FBI leaked uh, disinformation and misinformation uh, to uh, conservative columnists such as Hedda Hopper, Ed Sullivan, Walter Winchell, Westbrook Pegler. Uh, day after day, week after week, year after year, he was slagged in the print. Uh, the only defenders he had essentially were the New York Times. Uh, in Hollywood, people kept their mouths shut because they were all afraid they'd be next on the uh, the hit list. In all of Hollywood, the only three people really stood up for him. Cary Grant, uh, Sam Goldwyn, and William Wyler. That was pretty much it. Everybody else just sort of excused themselves from the room. And ultimately, uh, he, uh, in 1952, September 1952, he uh, and his wife Una and their four children got on board the Queen Elizabeth to go to England to open his film Limelight, which is, had just been completed and was just opening in America as well as London. And he went over to do the publicity for the film. Two days out of New York, he received a telegram that his reentry permit uh, had been rescinded by the Attorney General, uh, Harry Truman's Attorney General. Uh, and he was effectively banned from America. The FBI file reveals that uh, they knew very well that if he decided to make a case out of it and come back and he have a hearing about the rescindment of his uh, uh, a reentry permit, they would have to let him back in because they actually had no grounds to ban him. He'd never been convicted of any crime. Uh, and they were using a, 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 a statute that basically was used to deport mafiosa, mafiosi out of the country. Well, he'd never been convicted of anything, not even, not even tax evasion, nothing, because they'd 
they had had the FBI had had him under uh, surveillance for years. They tapped his phones. They opened his letters. They went over the IRS went over his uh, corporate books, his personal income tax, with a fine tooth comb. They never found anything to uh, prosecute him on. Uh, so basically, they just made a preemptive decision to kick him out, and he got his backup. Uh, and he uh, absolutely refused to ever consider coming back here. So he, uh, within a few months, he bought a, a manor house in Switzerland, moved his family uh, uh, in there, and he lived the rest of his life there. He came back 20 years after uh, this unpleasantness, after he was banished, to receive an honorary Academy Award, which was Hollywood's way of saying, we're sorry, we kept our mouths shut and acted like cowards. Uh, <laughs> and he accepted the award, uh, doubtless with the back of his mind thinking, yeah, where were you when I needed you? <laughs> That's a long answer to a short question. No, that's great though. But that so we, that's that's the overall you know the, the arc of your book is about his political life as well as his artistic life and and you know his his romantic life. And I want to go into a little more of those in a little more detail. But by backing up and going maybe down a different street, I want to just say something to the listeners that you say in the beginning of the book, which I thought was really interesting. You say really early in the book, you say this is your quote. A case could be made for Chaplin as the single most important figure in motion picture history. Now, that you've written a lot about a lot of very, very important people in motion picture history. Now, of course, as soon as as soon as soon a writer says that, the reader automatically starts to say, well, let me see, let me see, how's it? So make that case for our listeners now, because that's, a, that's certainly a case you can make. What, what makes you put that into print? Chaplin starts making movies in December of 1913. Uh, within 18 months, uh, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's making, uh, uh, $650,000 a year. Uh, starting salary was $175 a year. Uh, he electrified the world, not just the movie industry in America, not just Los Angeles. He electrified the world. The character he created in the spur of the moment, the tramp became a universal symbol for the disenfranchised, essentially. In France, they saw him as, Fr as French. In England, they saw him as English. He kind of thought the character was essentially derived from the English, too. Uh, in America, they took him as American. In Japan, they took him as Japanese. He, The character conquered the world, and so did Chaplin. In so doing, he united all the quadrants of the audience, the worldwide audience in a way that no other performer had up to that time and that no other performer really did after that until much later much, much later, in well into the end of the silent era and into the sound era. Uh, and, and, and what made it what made it possible essentially was silent pictures, because you didn't hear his voice. So you simply you, you if if he'd opened his mouth, the tramp would have been English because Chaplin had a soft English accent. <laughs> so there would there, there the universality would have zoomed right out the window. Uh, but luckily there were silent pictures. There was no sound. So people took him uh, as a visual symbol of, of, of the disenfranchised. And as I said, I don't think any other performer achieved that level of fame that quickly uh, and, and critical acclaim as well. And Chaplin being Chaplin, Chaplin not trusting social structures, Chaplin not trusting uh, 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 national constructs, of what people think, that, of, of what countries say they will do and what people say they will do. He only trusted Chaplin because of what he'd gone through as a child. And he quickly seized the uh, means of production. He built his own studio in 1918. Uh, 
he uh, made all his films there from uh, from 1918 through Limelight in 1952. Uh, he answered to no one except Chaplin. He financed his own pictures out of his own pocket. He didn't take any money from anybody else. He he, he guarded his independence ferociously. He made exactly the films he wanted to make, even when everybody else in show business thought he'd lost his mind. Uh, and in so doing, he basically created the uh, the ide- the directorial ideal that directors still aim for, uh, the sort of remote autocrat that uh, exemplified by Stanley Kubrick some years back or Christopher Nolan today. Uh, they do as they please and every, everybody thinks they're nuts. They go ahead and do it anyway. And generally it works out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it all derives from, from the role model that Chaplin created. Yeah. That's great. Because you, when I read your book, I couldn't stop thinking, I'm like, talk about a Horatio Alger story. I mean, you know, you talked before about his, his, uh, being subjected to the tender mercies of the, of the, you know, the, the British, um, care system. It's amazing what he was able to do in his lifetime and how, and how, what a hustler he was and how, how fast he moved and how smart he was. Well, he had no choice. If he was going to survive, the water, the water was at his chin by the time he was six or seven years old, basically. Uh, and if he didn't swim, he was going to go under. And and on some level, he understood that. And for a long time, he was treading water. He didn't he didn't have any sense of direction, particularly. Uh, he, he was a show business family. His father was a show in, in English music hall. His mother was in in the English music hall. But they were both train wrecks. His father died at thirty seven of alcoholism. His mother went insane and was uh, institutionalized for the bulk of her life. Uh, and he was remanded to workhouses uh, and in and out of institutions himself. Uh, for a time, he lived on the streets. Uh, and he was saved basically by the intervention of his older brother, Sidney, uh, who was the unsung hero of Charlie Chaplin's life. Although I think if you'd asked Chaplin, he would have absolutely said no question about it. I owe, I owe Sidney a great deal. Uh, but it was Sidney who got into show business first. It was Sidney who worked, was working for Fred Carnot, who was the most successful comedy entrepreneur of the continent in that era, in England, in the post, uh, in pre-World War I era. Uh, and after Sidney had established himself, he took his younger brother, Charlie, to Carnot and said, you need to hire this kid. And all Carnot saw was this frightened adolescent, basically, uh, who wasn't, who was complete, who was pathologically shy, could barely bring himself to speak. Uh, and looked like he needed a good meal. Uh, and But Carnot took him out as a charity case, basically, because he liked Sydney, and Sydney was, you know, uh, highly regarded within the Carnot company. Uh, and from that point, from that, uh, uh, when Chaplin got that firm foundation under his feet, he took off. He took off. Yeah, it's like it's almost Dickensian, like this David Copperfield story of this guy going from rags to riches. Um, you Let's go a little further into that. You, you talk about what he became as an artist and how he had to do this. And he, and he became like Kubrick. Like, I love that analogy there. Max Eastman, the writer who was a friend of his, said that Chaplin could not mold his personal life as he molded a picture. So how, how did Chaplin like to mold his pictures? What was he like as a director? Obsessive compulsive. Uh, basically, his directorial technique was to act out for the other actors what he wanted them to do. Uh, moment by moment, beat by beat. And he would do and he would shoot as much film as he needed to in order for them to replicate his performance as them. 
But today it's funny because that's a no-no among directors is that you're not supposed to do a line reading for a celebrity. Like you don't, there's a famous story where Rob Reiner did a line reading for Jack Nicholson on A Few Good Men and all the, like Tom Cruise and everyone else was like, oh my God, he just right, did that. Right, So, right, But right. he he got hit, he would do line readings. He would do the blocking himself. He would pretty much play every part and you he had would. to do it exactly like you wanted it, right? He couldn't, he, he could not delegate. That That's very clear. <laughs> he could not delegate anything. When sound came in, he he started writing the musical scores for his uh, his films. Uh, he would sketch uh, he would sketch the sets for the art director. I mean, he deleg- it was just impossible. He was a one man band, and he liked it that way. He liked it that way. It was really the only way he could function. It was the only way he could function cr- creatively. Uh, and of course, because of that, occasionally stuff slipped through. Uh, especially after he left America, uh, when he was in a foreign country, when he had to shoot his films in England and he didn't have the psychological security blanket of, of his studio on La Brea. Uh, it got very difficult for him and he got a little, he would get uh, uh, more worried than he should have been about the budget of the films and spending money. And we must hurry up. We must hurry up. Now this is a multimillionaire many times over, many times over. He was never going to be broke. Uh, but in the back of his mind, he was always that little kid, you know, with the the water at his chin. And if things, if the, once the dominoes started falling to, to, to lay on the cliches, uh, who knows what could happen? So it, it, it was just very, very difficult for him. Uh, and also as his, uh, his assistant, uh, Jerry Epstein told me, uh, Jerry was his assistant on Limelight and was the associate producer on the last two pictures he made, King of New York and Concert for Hong Kong. Well, he was the producer of Concert for Hong Kong. And as Jerry said, and he was a family friend as well as a professional uh, associate, Jerry said, you know, if you live in London or New York or, or Los Angeles or Rome, you're abraded in creative ways. I mean, you're on the street, there's hubbub, there's the cafes, there's the restaurants, there's the gossip, there's all these things keeping you pointed up. He said, in Switzerland, you watch the goats eat the grass. There's really nothing going on, which is the whole point of being in Switzerland. People go there to pull the plug and to relax completely. But in terms of of, of being an artist, it's not exactly a creative environment. Yeah. And, made- and but he wanted at that point, he needed to lower the volume. He he didn't want to hear anything ever again about politics, about uh, 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 about getting grief from the IRS or the FBI or anybody or anybody. He just wanted to be left alone and raise his family. And he always cooperated. Two things. One is that he, in your book, you point out numerous occasions where he would cooperate with everybody. They would say, we need this money for this. Okay, fine. We'll do this. We'll pay off this. We'll do all these things. So it wasn't like he was trying to like, you know, stir a pot anywhere. Um, and the other thing you just reminded me of is you said obsessive and compulsive. Didn't he write a, a, like a, a kind of like a novelistic treatment for limelight, like a he biography a no- of the character? Basically, he wrote a novel. Yeah. Uh, 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 some of which takes place before the movie opens uh, and then goes all the way through to the end of the movie. But it's sort of a prep for writing the screenplay. And also, I because Limelight is essentially a very personal movie about Chaplin, about the, the theater, the English theater that Chaplin grew up in, the Victorian slash Edwardian theater of about 1900. Uh, it's a way of his recalling his memories and putting them in and figuring out how to integrate them into the dramatic structure of a movie. So he's, and he started, and he, it's the only time he ever did that. It's the only time he actually wrote a literary piece 
as preparation for a film script. Uh, and it's, it's, it was published uh, over, in, over in Europe, and it's very interesting. And he's not a bad writer at all. I mean, it's not, it's not highly professional, but it's, 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 for a guy with a fifth or sixth grade education, it's pretty impressive. So let's talk about the Carnot Company, or, or actually what happened after he joined them. He comes to the United States in 1910, I think it was. 1910, he yeah. comes over with yes. the Carnot Company, right? Yes. He's in this he's troop with Stan. He's here for a couple of years. Uh, he, he went back to England a couple of times, you know, just to do his laundry. Uh, but basically, he toured America for several years, got to know the country extremely well, from the you know from New York City to Cleveland to Butte, Montana, to Salt Lake City. I mean, big cities medium-sized towns, burgs, he played them all. And he really got to know the warp and woof of, of America, and he fell in love with the place. Uh, he, he felt very comfortable here, partially because it was the antithesis of England, which was very staid and gray and smoky compared to what was going on in America in, America in, in the turn of the century, turn of the last century. Yeah, with Stan Laurel, right? Stan Laurel was in his Stan Laurel was his understudy. Yeah. Stan Laurel was his understudy, and and they roomed together for a long time. Uh, and as Stan Laurel said, people said Charlie got eccentric. He said Charlie was eccentric then. You know, <laughs> he the, the he didn't he didn't associate much with the other performers. Uh, he was aloof. Uh, he would come in like he would show up like a minute before he was had to go on stage. And Laurel was like, they're ready to go on. And then Chaplin would just sort of drift by and nail the performance, like off the top of his head. He didn't, he didn't have to prep. You know, he just could do it instantly. Uh, and he was w- well known to be thrifty. But every once in a while, he'd show up uh, uh, in, in an extremely elaborate wardrobe, cane, the whole thing, shine shoes. And everybody would, what's hitting Charlie? I don't know. And then he would, and then we'd go back to being scruffy. You know, uh, he was he was uh, he was his own man and he didn't uh, he didn't necessarily behave according to the way show business people behaved in that era. And so he let's kept talk himself. To- he read a lot. Yeah. He, was, he, was, he always had his nose in a book. So he's in the United States for all this time. He makes his fortune. Like you said, he, he does this un- unbelievable job of creating the movie, so to speak. But the thing that galled so many people was that he just wouldn't become an American citizen. So what's his response to somebody saying, look, Charlie, like, you know, theater owners are saying, you know, he made all his money here. Just just go ahead. Just go like go through the formality. Show your support for the country. What's the big problem? Why wouldn't he why wouldn't he do that symbolic to as many people act? Because he didn't believe in, in, in that kind of national pride thing. Uh, Max Eastman, I quote Max Eastman, uh, who knew him for, well, close to four, over 40 years. Uh, and Eastman said, people misinterpreted Charlie. They, uh, 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 because he'd come from England poor and made his money here, they felt he was obligated to take out citizenship. And he didn't. He said what they didn't understand was if he'd been born in America and went to England and made his fortune, he wouldn't have taken out English citizenship either. He just wasn't that person. You know, he wanted, he was perfectly willing to pay his taxes and he did, you know, he, he didn't shirk on that. Nobody ever accused him of that, uh, but he simply didn't, uh, wouldn't partake of that kind of knee-jerk uh, patriotic identity. One of the great long pieces in your book is the making of the great dictator, and your book sent me back to the great dictator. So I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about that. That was really, really compelling. 
So The Great Dictator, his first talkie, his first sound movie, comes out in 1940. And I was also surprised to, surprised to learn that it's his most commercially successful film. You said it was the film nobody in Hollywood wanted, but it proved to be a great hit, right? So let's talk for a little bit. Why is The Great Dictator so important to Chaplin's story as an artist, as, as somebody interested in political ideas? People today laugh in Hollywood about edgy movies. And when I read this book and watched The Great Dictator again, I'm like, no, The Great Dictator is edgy. You don't get more edgy than putting The Great Dictator out in 1940. So l- let's talk about that movie and its importance. Obviously, there's a physical resemblance between the tr- between Chaplin's character and Hitler. Uh, not a psychological resemblance, but a, certainly a physical resemblance. And people have commented on it before because Hitler had the same mustache. And they were born four days apart, which is one of those freaky things. Uh, the thing of it is, is that no one, the, the film, he made the emotional decision to make the movie at a time when America was like 65 or 70% isolationist. Nobody wanted that film made, not in Hollywood, not in England, because in England, the, the, the British foreign office was against the film being made because Neville Chamberlain was prime minister and they were engaged in the official uh, attitude of appeasing Hitler, trying to appease Hitler. And they didn't want to, uh, 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 they didn't want to upset the, uh, the beehive, you know, and, and have anything ups an Englishman uh, doing a parody, a satire of Hitler. They thought it could only redound to be a, the, to be a disastrous situation for England. Well, Hollywood didn't want it either for the same reason, because they had a very, there was the German consulate in Los Angeles had a guy named George Gisling and George Gisling's uh, function in life was to put the arm on any Hollywood studios that were making that would think of making anti-Nazi pictures. Now the intermediary between Gisling and, and Chaplin was a man named Joe Breen who ran the censorship office at the Hayes office. And in the summer of 1939, Gisling was very concerned because there were still reports coming out that, that Chaplin was planning this picture. And uh, uh, Breen went to Chaplin and asked what was going on. And Chaplin said, there's no story and there's no script. And about three weeks later, he began building sets for the picture. <laughs> so clearly, Chaplin didn't think telling the truth to Nazis was necessarily uh, an imperative, you know? <laughs> uh, and so he, he, he just went ahead and, and started shooting the picture in September of 1939. The picture opened a year later in October of 1940. And isolationism, isolationism is still at its peak. Remember, America doesn't get into the war until December 1941 in Pearl Harbor. You had the Joe Kennedys of the, of the world believing that if Hitler, uh, Hitler took France, Hitler took Belgium, if Hitler takes England, it's not our problem. We'll just make a separate peace with him and we'll go on about our business and we can still all make money. And Franklin Roosevelt knew better and Chaplin knew better. And it was basically Franklin Roosevelt was the only uh, the only uh, fan of uh, Chaplin's plans to make the picture and, and bucked him up considerably. There's a letter in the book from Jack Warner, who had a meeting with Roosevelt in the White House. Uh, and wrote a letter to Chaplin that Roosevelt had uh, talked about how important he thought the picture was and how much uh, he believed the picture needed to be made and that he would uh, uh, he was sure that Chaplin would have uh, uh, be able to show it because a lot of people weren't even sure the picture would be exhibited uh, because, I mean, Chaplin had 25% of United Artists, but United Artists, there was no guarantee United Artists was going to take the picture. Because what if the Nazis firebomb the theaters? What if they pick it? What if, what if, what if, what if? And Chaplin said, then I will rent halls. I'll put up tents. I'll show the picture wherever I can show it. Uh, he was that committed. 
and he again he finds that he he spent a million four on that picture, which is a lot of money in 1940. That's not a cheap picture uh, uh, to make. Um, but he was he was convinced that uh, the only way to confront Hitler was to do it directly, and and uh, brutal satire was a, a very effective way to go. It's one thing to see the tramp chased by, you know, um, somebody who, you know, he skipped out of a restaurant or something like that. But to see him chased by stormtroopers, that's that's a much different kind of thing. Right. So 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 can you tell our viewers a little bit about like what's what was so daring about this movie? It's not just that the tramp plays Hitler. It's that the tramp is mistaken for Hitler. And then we'll kind of lead up to the big speech at the end. Like like why were people so afraid of him to make this movie? They just wanted it to go away. They just wanted Hitler to go away. They wanted Europe to go away. It wasn't our problem. Right. It wasn't our problem until it became our problem when they blew up the Pacific fleet. Then it became our problem. And that was the Japanese. You know, but Hitler got dragged into it because he was uh, tight with Hirohito. Uh, But basically, the entire Western world wanted Hitler to go away. And here was Chaplin basically poking, poking the bear, poking the bear. Because he thought the bear would eat us. And he was right. Yeah. And it's very easy. Your book put me in that space because it's very easy in 2023 to have to have be a Monday morning quarterback and look back at World War II. But your book reminded me of how, how that the volume of people that said, this is just a European war. This is not our not our problem at all. And Chaplin says, no, it is our problem. It's the world's problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. He was a globalist. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. He was a globalist before the term became uh, 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 a Yeah, a citizen of the world, so to speak. So at the end of the film, the barber, who's the lookalike for the for Hitler, through through the series of machinations in the plot, ends up in front of a microphone, and that he's going to pose as as Hitler, and he starts to give this speech. And in Chaplin's first talking picture, it's unbelievable. I think it's like a two and a half minute or three minute no, it's speech. Like six minutes. It's a six oh, minutes. is it longer than okay? It's six minutes each. So, speech. Yes. So when he talks about the ideals and Hannah, if you can hear me, and he talks about, you know, you are men, you're not machines, and this is the way you should live. Now, I I found that very moving at the end. I think it's very, you know, we talk about artists being brave, but this is really something else. Why were some people upset about what he said at the end of of the film? He got some criticism for, well, basically he steps out of character. I mean, he doesn't rip off his mustache, the little mustache. But he cuts to a close-up. He cuts from a, a long shot where he's essentially in character to a close-up where he delivers the speech in one, uh, in one take. And basically, he's out of character because you can suddenly see the age on his face. You know, he's not. He looks like a a, a fifty-two-year-old man, a fifty-one, fifty-two-year-old man. He looks his age, uh, and we're not used to seeing the tramp looking that old. So essentially, he's saying, here I am. Here's Charlie Chaplin. Here I am telling you what I believe. You know, it's, it's, a, it, it's a Jacques moment, and it's an I believe moment, because he goes from this is what I believe to this is what I don't believe. And, and, and everything that Hitler represented uh, was what needed to be destroyed. And he's willing to put his money and his creativity and his very being against Hitler's. And it's it's uh, it's an extraordinary moment in cinema, really, uh, that transcends movies. I think it's a great moment in human history because here's an artist. It's Chaplin's version of Guernica. It's exactly what Picasso did with his painting. It's an artist putting himself and everything he believes in one square image. 
you know, with, with, with Picasso, it's that huge, huge painting. And with Chaplin, it's a close-up of a man saying, this is what I believe. And what does he specifically believe that he expresses at the end of that film? That in our natural state, men are men and women are fine and beautiful, and that it's government and that it's politics and that it's machine men and machine minds that have brought us to this point. So let's talk about somebody you mentioned before, Una O'Neill. Uh-huh. We'll go to his romantic life now. And so she's portrayed in your book as the true love of his life, right? She was his fourth wife, I think, if we count Paulette Goddard as, a, as his legal wife. But, right. you know, how did they meet? He was 54. She was 18. He met her before she was 18. So so talk about her because she was with them through the through a lot of the trials. The, she was with them through the paternity trial. Yeah. Uh, no, he met her right after. No, during the paternity trial, she was there. Uh, and for everything that came after. Uh, she's the daughter of Eugene O'Neill, the playwright. Right. Uh, a uh, cast-off child, basically. O'Neill was a great playwright, but an atrocious human being uh, who abandoned all three of his children. Both of his sons committed suicide. Uh, Una saved herself by essentially finding Chaplin, who provided her with safe haven, emotional safe haven. Each of them, each of them gave the other complete acceptance, which is why the relationship lasted the rest of Chaplin's life. Uh, they were together from 1943. They got married in 43, uh, and Chaplin died in 1977. They had eight children together. Uh, and the reason that relationship flourished, and he never looked at another woman, uh, was because she gave him the security and the acceptance that he'd never had from any other woman in his life, uh, including his mother, because his mother withdrew because of madness and schizophrenia. Yeah. So in on some psychological level, I'm sure he felt abandoned by her too. So Una sticks with him throughout his, his public humiliations or attempts at his public humiliations by a certain group of people that I want to go back to. You mentioned them before, and these are the newspaper columnists. They're, they're, they come up in your book a lot. You, you call it a, quote, drip, drip, drip of comprehensively negative publicity. Uh-huh. That was great. Comprehensively, the full package of negative publicity. And we talked today about cancel culture and about, you know, you know, the power of Twitter or the power of, you know, social media, things like that. Your book really reminds a reader that this is not a new thing. Cancel culture is not a new thing and that these people were out for him. So, and you mentioned Ed Sullivan, which is so funny when people think about, you know, the Beatles, or so, but then you read about what Ed Sullivan was doing here. Yeah. So can you talk about these newspaper columnists and the power they had and, 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 and what they did to affect people's understanding of Charlie Chaplin. Well, of course, in the period we're talking about, the 1940s, journalism was at its uh, commercial uh, apogee. You know, newspapers were, 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 that's how people learned what was going on. There was no television at this point, uh, no general television. Uh, and, you know, there were newsreels, but those were just headlines. Uh, so newspapers were it. Uh, so columnists, opinion columnists, had enormous sway enormous sway, far beyond anything today when, you know, newspapers are on morphine drips. Um, so it was a different era. It was a different era. And it was, uh, Chaplin didn't really have any vehicle to respond, you know? I mean, he could issue a statement, but the statement didn't get printed, you know, because the, uh, the Chicago Tribune, which was uh, run by Robert McCormick, who was extremely conservative, wouldn't print it. The Hearst papers don't get me started. Uh, the, the, as I said, only the New York Times uh, defended him in a couple of editorials. But a couple of editorials over five or six years don't stop a flood 
of of columns that you know had a hopper. Uh, all, all these people that were flooding the uh, uh, the print media for uh, uh, for years on a weekly basis with stories, most of which were grossly untrue. I mean, my favorite story was one that got published after Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were uh, electrocuted, said that Chaplin was going to adopt the Rosenberg's children. That's how red he was, by God. <laughs> now, this is, this is on the one level, it's comic, lunacy. It's right. lunacy brought to the uh, realm of comedy. On the other hand, people believed it. People yeah. believed it. And so one of, the, one of the subtexts of the book, which I never bring out directly because I think it's too obvious, was that everything that's happening now has happened before. Right. And if we survive at this time, it'll happen again. In 20 years or 30 years, it will happen again because this is just a recurring, a recurring infection in the body politic that there doesn't seem to be any, uh, any antibiotic to, uh, for, for a cure. hundred percent. I, I, I saw that. saw that in the very font of your book that was loud and clear. That was, that was a great, great theme of the book. And I was amazed at that. We all say things like, well, I don't care what other people think about me. And I'm my own person. We all say that to ourselves. But I was amazed that he could keep it together by the constant pounding every single day of these people. Like, you know, they make up something about the Rosenbergs. Uh-huh. Um, so he he makes the great dictator. He follows that with a very different kind of film, Monsieur Verdoux in uh, 47. Now, this is less well known than his silent movies, The Great Dictator. Can you talk about that movie and how it was received? It was the wrong movie at the wrong time. It's uh, <laughs> it was universally in America. It, it got uh, uh, basically no good reviews, whatever. Got lousy business. Chaplin pulled it from release after four or five weeks. Hired Russell Birdwell, who had devised the publicity campaign for Gone with the Wind, to try to come up with a different ad campaign that might draw people into the theater. Uh, they re- he'd originally released the picture in April. He pulled it after five weeks. They re-released it in September, and it still died. So basically, it did well in Europe, however, because it, right. it would have, uh, <laughs> just out of pure uh, cussedness on the part of the Europeans. The Americans hate it. We'll love it. Uh, it's a movie uh, whose idea was brought to Chaplin by Orson Welles, who, wanted, who thought it would be wonderful to use Chaplin in a movie about the uh, French bourgeois wife killer Landrieu. And it piqued Chaplin's interest, but he didn't, he'd already reached that stage where he wouldn't work for anybody but himself. Uh, this reached its apogee years later when uh, Samuel Beckett offered him uh, the film version of Waiting for Godot, with Chaplin playing all the parts. And Chaplin wrote him back saying, I respect the work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but I don't work for anybody else. And I'm thinking to myself, philosophical tramps. I think that's in his wheelhouse, you know? But he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. Now, I, I know he could have acted it. I don't know if he could have directed it. That's another issue. <laughs> okay. And nobody's successful. Nobody's made a film out of Waiting for Godot. And there might be a good reason because maybe it just needs to be done on stage. Right. But anyway, uh, but he bought the idea from Orson Welles for $5,000 and uh, uh, went through the, uh, the legal mess, the Joan Barry mess, and then started writing the script. And uh, uh, shot the film in 1946, released it in 1947 at the height of the anti-communist fervor. Uh, and it was a story about a guy, uh, a bank teller who goes broke in the stock market crash uh, in the late 1920s and uh, decides to support himself and his wife and child 
by marrying obnoxious rich women and killing them. Well, it's a great idea, but it wasn't a great, a great time for that idea. In, the, in 1964, it's reissued, and nobody had seen it, and she kept it off screen, American screens for 17 years. But it was reissued in America in 1917. And in the wake of Dr. Strangelove, it was regarded, it got reviews, this is a great sardonic black comedy, masterpiece. In the intervening years, the, uh, the, the enthusiasm has waned somewhat. It's not regarded as a masterpiece like Dr. Strangelove is, but it's a better movie than they thought it was in 1947. So it's one, it, it, but it, it was just the wrong movie at the wrong time uh, for him to play a misogynist after he'd been uh, publicly pilloried uh, in, the, uh, in the paternity suit for being a misogynist. It, it, it was a little yeah. close to the bone. Yeah, yeah, well, so, and and it seemed like he wasn't about to take someone's advice by saying, "Why don't you why, let's look at something else? Let's look at a different project." It seemed like when he got committed to it, he was committed. Well, no, he knew, he realized he was too old to play the tramp. He realized right. the tramp had become slightly archaic right. in the post-war era. I, I make the point that uh, in, 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 after World War II, uh, the prevailing social attitude is existential cynicism, existentialism. Well, there's not really room for the tramp in an existential world. He's a more romantic, idealistic character, and Chaplin understood that. And also, I think he was just getting too old to play the part. There was another issue; yeah. uh, he didn't want to do it anymore. And so he was looking for other things to do, and this was certainly an audacious choice. Yeah, audacity is certainly one of his his hallmarks there. Yeah. So. I want to ask you about one of my favorite moments in the book, and it's actually not about Chaplin, but it is about Chaplin. It's when Chaplin's directing Limelight, and Claire Bloom's hanging on the set with Buster Keaton, Mm -hmm. and she says that Buster Keaton took from his pocket this color postcard of a large Hollywood mansion and showed it to her and said, this had once been my home, and then he got silent, and then he never mentioned it again. I thought that was such a great moment for you to include in the book. Can you talk about that moment and how this story about Buster Keaton kind of like comments on the story of Charlie Chaplin? Well, Keaton came to the part Keaton plays in the film is crucial when you see the film. But it was he's not it was he comes into the production when it's being shot. Uh, In other words, Chaplin didn't actually include him in the script and in the pre-production thing because he hadn't gone that far into what he was going to do in the in the act. The, th- the stage act that ends the film. Uh, he knew he was going to have another performer with him, uh, but he seems to have, uh, I think he mentions in passing, a Chester Conklin makeup. So he might have been thinking of using a Chester Conklin, who had been with him at the Keystone days, and he used Chester in both modern times and The Great Dictator in small parts. So he liked Conklin, and he was maybe thinking of Conklin. But at some point during the production of Limelight, someone mentioned that Keaton was broke and could use the job, which was not strictly true. He had been an alcoholic for years, had sobered up and was working, but he was working in television. And Chaplin loathed television and almost never watched it. He just didn't like television. He thought it was D-class A, uh, especially in the 1950s. So he didn't know that Keaton was working, but he knew Keaton from the 20s and he liked him. So he said, well, let's hire him, you know? So they worked this act up together uh, in the film. And uh, the ballet had been meant the ballet that Chaplin constructed. And after the red shoes, everybody's doing ballets in movies. There's American in Paris has a ballet, you know, Lily has a ballet. There's ballets breaking out all over Hollywood. And Chaplin did a ballet too in Limelight. It's a nice ballet. Um, but he uh, 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 hires Keaton. And as they rehearse this and as they shoot it and rehearse it and shoot, rehearse and shoot, it becomes something extraordinary. 
and uh, it kind of negates the ballet in a sense, you know, because the ballet had been designed as the emotional centerpiece of the film. Because of this accidental pairing of Chaplin and Keaton, the two great clowns of, of the pre-war era, it becomes that becomes the emotional centerpiece, uh, making the ballet slightly redundant. But Keaton on the set was very recessive. He didn't talk. He and Chaplin would discuss things quietly between them and uh, as peers, you know. Uh, and, but it, it, Keaton wouldn't talk to anybody else. He, was, he would sit by himself carving, uh, uh, carving little uh, buildings for his model train set. He loved, Keaton loved model trains. Uh, and had them uh, uh, at his house in uh, in the valley, uh, and he would carve these model trains to pass the time on the film set. And then, when it's time for a take, he would put it down and then pick up the knife and start carving again after the take. Um, but he was a very recessive personality, and was uh, a, a recovering alcoholic, which probably added to the recessiveness, you know, the shakiness. Uh, and that was the only thing he said to Claire Bloom, unbidden. He just pulled out this postcard and showed her this massive mansion he used to live in in Beverly Hills that he lost when his alcoholism overwhelmed him and his wife divorced him and MGM fired him and then just put the thing back in his wallet and went back into silence. Yeah. That's, it's a strange, it, it'd be a great scene in a movie, actually. It would be. A, it's a total <laughs> scene in a movie, right? A, a movie about like the. Movie. Yeah. And it goes in your book so well because your book is about the vagaries of fame and your reputation and how, you know, you never know which way these things are going to go. And Limelight is about a comedian who loses his audience and 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 doesn't know and isn't sure he can make people laugh anymore. And I think there's a certain corollary to what Keaton's state was, too, you know, because after you have you after you crash and burn in in such a prodigious way as Keaton did. You've got to have some doubts, it seems to me, about your ability to recoup. Yeah. So near the end of the book, you talk about, we talked about the, you know, the vagaries of fame. At the end of the book, Chaplin's writing his memoirs. And I was reminded of another famous director, comedian, who was once very popular due to a scandal, though, loses a big part of his audience, but then writes his memoirs. And that's Woody Allen. And earlier you said how, like, you know, the book has all these, like, connections to our current day, so to speak. And so I thought to myself about, you know, celebrity scandals. So you think about Woody Allen or Ingrid Bergman or Roman Polanski, or there's a whole bunch of them. Like, what do you see as the connections between what happens to Charlie Chaplin and what happened many other times with celebrities? Or do you see any connections between someone like Chaplin and, and Woody Allen or others? Well, yeah, there are. There are, except there were also they were at similar stages in their careers, you know. Uh, 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 Chaplin, Chaplin had run into uh, commercial failure. Uh, Woody Allen was uh, no longer the guy that was making uh, Manhattan and Annie Hall. He, he'd made a lot of pictures, and that all of them had been great. Uh, so they were kind of similar stages, and the the bloom was off the rose. Let's put it that way. Right. right. Uh, and Allen liked younger women, and so did Chaplin. You know, well, what are you going to yeah. do? Uh, whereas Chaplin was actually prosecuted, Allen was never prosecuted. He was investigated. Uh, the authorities decided there was nothing there and they let him go. That means he's innocent. End of story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Chaplin got prosecuted. So you mentioned this before, but him going back to the United States for the Academy Awards, yeah. he vowed he would never go back. His actual quote was, I wouldn't go back there if Jesus Christ was president. 
but he does go he does not go back bitter. not not yeah. bitter no yeah not that that's not bitter at all no. 1972 he goes back so he goes like so what pulled him back what why did he say i'll go back for the academy awards like you, you describe that moment in the book what's that moment like what's what's his relationship with the united states like at the end well he hadn't been back in 20 years it, it was 1972 uh the motivation for the trip back essentially was he had made a deal for the reissue of his library of films. They'd been off screens in America for since uh, he left the country since the, since the 1940s. America hadn't seen modern times. We hadn't seen great dictator. We hadn't seen limelight or Verdue since uh, uh, the 1940s and the early fifties. So he had made a deal uh, to lease, not sell lease his library of films for 20 years, for I believe it was $5 million against 50%. Uh, he was always a good businessman. And basically, uh, the uh, the people putting up the money wanted him to do as much publicity as he could. Now, at this point, he's 82, 83 years old, and he's a little frail. Uh, he's not bouncing around anymore. He's, he's a little unsteady on his feet, as many 82-year-olds are. Uh, so he said he would do it depending on his health. So he went to Paris and and opened Modern Times there, and it was huge. I mean, the films, the, the Chaplin films, outgrossed uh, new films that were just they're being released at the same time. I think I mentioned uh, in America the the the, the money that uh, the the French money that the the amount of money that Modern Times made compared to Hitchcock's Frenzy, which was a brand new film, and of course the French adored Hitchcock. And Frenzy made a little more money, but not much more money <laughs> than Modern Times did in, in 1971. Uh, but it was a part of a business deal to do as much promotion as possible to gin up interest in his, his library of films. And it worked. The reissues were extremely successful. Uh, everybody was happy. The, the, the people who put up the money to reissue the films were happy. Chaplin's family was happy. That After a while, the rights uh, uh, reverted to uh, the family. And they still own the rights to the films. They never, they've never sold the films off. Uh, so it was partially a business deal, but it became something more. It became, um, you know, he got this extraordinary standing ovation at the Oscars that just went on and on and on. And he's clearly overwhelmed, uh, and close to tears and, and older. He's frail. You can see that, you know, he's an old man now and he's not feisty middle-aged guy. He was in, in the 1940s and fifties. Uh, and it's moving and it's also a way of gauging how vulnerable he was at this point in his life because he really hadn't been terribly vulnerable when all these people were assaulting him. He was pretty stout and he was pretty tough and he took it. He took it like a pro. Uh, but here he's kind of quivering and overwhelmed. And I think it was beyond his expectations. And I also think he was moved by the, the aura of forgiveness that was inevitable in, in, mm-hmm. in, in the ceremony itself, you know, mm-hmm. and he was glad to have the Oscar. Even though his son, Sidney, uh, who's a delightful man, said the thing that it is, he never cared about awards. He didn't care about Academy Awards. He really didn't. Sidney said what he cared about was work, was the daily work, the task of, of building a film from nothing, from the ground up. He loved the dailiness of work. That was his pleasure. That was his joy. What came after that, awards for this or that or the other thing, it didn't didn't really ring a bell with him. But on the other hand, the person that Sidney was talking about was not the 82-year-old Charlie Chaplin. Sidney was talking about the 40- and 50-year-old Charlie Chaplin. 
who had gotten the New York uh, Film Critics Award for Best Performance in The Great Dictator, and almost, you know, he just, he didn't, it's not like he displayed it on his mantle, you know, he really didn't. It It wasn't a big deal to him because he thought the important thing was the job, the work, the drive. Uh, whatever happened afterwards was out of your hands. So why worry about it? Right. He was a true artist in that, that, like you said, that's what he cared about. And if it's, if it's awards or politics or social codes or all those other things, that that's, that's tangential to what I'm trying to do here. Yeah. Well, he always said, he said, I was, he was only vulnerable to women when he wasn't working. When he was working, there was nothing else, you know, and Jack Oakey on the great dictator said, he would be, they'd have to help him into his, his car at the end of the shooting day. He was so exhausted. And often they'd think, well, he's not going to be able to make it in tomorrow. He always made it in. He always put a full day in. Uh, but he gave completely, you know, when he worked. Uh, but that, again, that, that is a, that's the true artist. That's why Picasso yeah. was still drawing, what, you know, a week before he died. You know, you, you have to yank the, the, the paintbrush from his hand. And you had to do, and, and the only thing that stopped Chaplin from working was extreme old age. Yeah. So Scott Ivan, it's been great talking with you today. Charlie Chaplin versus America, When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided is a terrific, terrific book published by Simon & Schuster. Thank you so much for coming on the New Books Network. Oh, thank you, Dan. My pleasure. <laughs>